TED Audio Collective. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is Zigzag Chapter 10. Quick note to new listeners, thank you for letting me and Jen know that so many of you have gone back and binged all nine episodes of the show so far. We're so thrilled to hear that we've made some long car rides a little more entertaining and educational. On this episode, reaction to the news that we broke last week, that Civil, our blockchain journalism platform, is delaying its token sale until September. Also on this episode, Anthony Bourdain. Yes, that's right. A few months before he died, Bourdain did a very unusual interview with one of our colleagues, another journalist launching her own independent newsroom on the Civil platform. After his death, it became clear to me, like, there is no more. This is, this is what we have of this man in the last months of his life. Maria Bustillos is the founder of Popula, and the piece that she ended up writing on Bourdain went viral. It's a great piece, a long piece. Two journalists at the top of their game discussing the state of the world, what their role should be in helping shape opinion, philosophizing, maybe drinking a little too much. And Maria recorded the whole thing. And she's sharing that tape for the first time with us. We'll be back in a sec. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. If you're wondering why I sound a little different than usual, it's because technically I'm on vacation with my family in upstate New York. We rented this house way before I had quit my job and all this crazy stuff went down. And so here I am underneath a blanket in one of the bedrooms upstairs while the kids are out back on the trampoline. So this week, Jen and I are talking by phone. Ring, ring. <laughs> Hi, Jen. I'm Anoush. Where are you sitting? I am under a blanket in my bedroom in my, my oh, apartment. You went under a blanket? I decided not to be under a blanket for this part because I can't breathe under there. I, I don't know if it's going to help or not. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so we wanted to sort of share some of the feedback that we got by the the news that we had last week, which was that Civil was delaying its token sale to September. And in case you have just jumped into chapter 10 and haven't been following this whole uh, zigzag saga, Civil is a platform that is trying to create kind of like a social media network, but for journalism, good journalism. And the way it's trying to make that platform work is by publishing onto blockchain uh, and using crypto economics to create what's called a token curated registry. 
geez, the way I just described it, it's so fascinating. Nothing else could possibly intrigue listeners to go back and listen. It sounds so boring when I throw around all that terminology, but actually it is really fascinating. Do you agree, Jen? I happen to agree. I'm a little biased on that one. (laughs) I know you're a little biased, but anyway. Okay. So the news last week was that this token sale that is happening has been postponed to September. I don't know. What did you think of all the responses that we got? Well, I I found it fascinating that the responses were so broad. There was a big group of people that felt relieved because it will give them more time to look into the token sale, to research, to to see if they want to buy tokens, to see if they can buy tokens, all of that. So, and I've also been hearing from people who have already signed up for the webinars that Civil is offering. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like some people are kind of like, oh, this is a chance at like a free continuing ed education yeah. in in blockchain and and token curated registries. So right, right. I will say there were also people who were like, oh my God, my I'm out. I can't deal with this. Like it's too complicated, I, dates and all the rest of it. I'm with you guys because I like you, Manoush and Jen, but I am going to be an observer about the whole civil experiment, which I get too. Yeah, I, I think that's understandable. And I mean, from our perspective, like, you know, we've said all along, if you don't want to buy tokens or if you don't want to participate on the civil side, like, you don't have to. We hope you keep listening. Yeah. And we hope that they continue to enjoy our story and the narrative. So we definitely got that reaction. And sometimes, like, very vehemently and strong, like, very, I'm not doing this. <laughs> oh, like the woman who told me that they should shove their tokens up their ass. They're, that was didn't she I say love that response. Little asses? <laughs> yes, they're little tokens up their big asses, or I don't know. Some something was big, something was small. In any case, that was a very strong response. But meanwhile, there's been another set of responses. When you said the responses were broad, boy, have they been broad. There was that. Remember that guy on Twitter? <laughs> Which one? There are two that I'm thinking of. Okay, well, there was one guy on Twitter who told us he thought we were out of our depth and that our, this guy was particularly mean and that our reputations will be burned uh, if the token sale ends badly. He seemed the most trolly or troll-like that we've had to deal with yes. so far. You it liked, was kind of funny too. You, you, <laughs> liked one of his, <laughs> you liked one of his tweets and that really made him mad. He got so mad. He's like, I can't believe you just liked the tweet that I wrote to you, which was so nasty. I was like, I don't, I kind of feel like, well, look, I, I take your opinion. Like, I think it's really interesting to me that when I respond to people who say mean things, they back down. They are like, oh, there's a real person on the other side who has thoughts and is actually taking what I say seriously. This is happening time and time again, also really... in the zigzag inbox, by the way. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, like that woman that said that they should take their tokens and stick them up their little asses. She then apologized what? Yeah, she two hours apologize. later, she sent an email and then <laughs> said, "I'm sorry," and that she just and she then decided to donate. I believe we should say thank you to her. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but you're right. But All that, right, so that other the trolley guy didn't exactly back down. He that's when he said our reputations will be horribly burned if the token sale ends right. badly, and that we're out of our depth and and that we have a conflict of interest by covering civil. To which another woman on Twitter then responded and said, "I disagree," and that. You know, Manoush and Jen have made it clear that there's a risk involved. And she also, I thought was funny, she said the quiz, the quiz makes it very clear that it's a risk. Yeah. And says she said if the sale goes badly, Manoush and Jen will lose out too. I thought that was kind of cool that she like stepped in to kind of, you know, 
argue on our behalf, basically. That was very nice for her. Okay, and then there was also this other well-meaning and very concerned guy who tweeted us um, to say that he was worried that we had inadvertently become Civil's unofficial spokespeople. Because, and here was his reason why, though, because he said that Civil's messaging in market and marketing, in his opinion, has not been effective enough to explain what Civil is actually doing and that people are being forced to listen to us to actually understand the project. That's kind of like a weird backhanded compliment, actually, that we are, that's what we do, right? As journalists, we explain yeah. things, but. I mean, we've also made it clear that Civil has no editorial control over what we do and that we are trying to very much lay out both sides, the pros and the cons of this whole thing. Absolutely. and I, But I loved what you did here. Instead of getting into like a big Twitter argument with him, you just simply tagged all the journalists publishing on Civil <laughs> and got Thanks. them to, you know, talk about their own work. And then within hours... Once he saw what the journalists on Civil had to say, you know, they explained their perspective and that we're all trying to work out the business model here uh, in this new experimental way. He changed his mind. I know. And he admitted it, too, which was, I mean, people, I will say this, 99% of the people that we are interacting with are pretty open-minded, which is, that to me is a win in this day and age. It's amazing. I mean, it also shows that they're really engaging with the content. They're really engaging with the idea of this, and they, they seem really invested. There's a need for, I think, uh, to have at least some hope that this could potentially work, and they don't want to. Right. I think there's there's like a guardedness. Like if if it fails, they don't they don't want to feel duped in some way, and I I really understand that feeling. That interaction between the journalists and that that guy on Twitter was really fascinating because he was he was open minded enough to go, okay, I see it now. I see that you guys aren't that you guys are, are are doing the work, basically. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up now. I'm going to try and find that Twitter conversation and link to it uh, on our website and in our newsletter this week. Um, but I think your point about by tagging all the journalists and talking about, like, the fact that the content, like, the things that those journalists are making right now, regardless of tokens or blockchain or any of the stuff that we just talked about, um, that is happening already before the, the platform has even launched. And I think actually this is the perfect transition to what this episode is actually really about. Yeah, it's about the journalism. We will definitely hear that. So go finish the episode, Manoush. Okay, I'll go do that. Bye, Jen. Bye. Okay, now it's time to talk to Maria Bustios. She's an author, a journalist, she's written for The New Yorker, The All, and now she's the founder of Popula.com, an online magazine of news and culture with an alt-global perspective, as she calls it. Popula also runs on the civil platform, which is how Jen and I have gotten to know Maria. I call her the captain of the first fleet of newsrooms. You heard from Maria a couple episodes back, but now you're going to really get to know her. Because before Civil, one of the things that Maria most enjoyed reporting on was blockchain and crypto. And so when Civil approached her in 2017 to be the first journalist to join their experiment, she said, hell yes. And Maria decided that one of the first things she wanted to publish on Popula was a long-form feature with someone whom she felt represented the values and all she wanted to achieve with her newsroom. I'm Maria Bustillos, the editor-in-chief of Popula.com. 
Anthony Bourdain was my first choice for like sort of a celebrity interview for the launch of this publication because um, he was a globalist and he was a, an egalitarian and he was fun and inherent in him were so many of the values that I wanted for this publication. Anthony Bourdain, the chef turned author, turned CNN travel show host, who, until he committed suicide in June, was kind of more like a global mediator, an ambassador, helping Americans connect to the rest of the world on more humanist, rather than political or consumer, terms. Maria had written about Bourdain before Popula. Last year, she wrote a long review of Bourdain's books for Eater called Fiction Confidential. Is the real Anthony Bourdain lurking in his early novels, she asked. At the time, I didn't realize there were 13. <laughs> there were so many books. So, um, yeah, and he had kind of started life as a crime novelist. He was really a very learned and literary guy. His mom was uh, an editor at the New York Times. And I really did read all those books really carefully, and I, I kind of developed a sense of him as a as a very melancholy and sort of solitary figure, very much at odds with what you saw on TV. And so I wrote about that. Bourdain read Maria's piece, and he wrote her a note. And the note said something like, this is the best thing anyone's ever written about me, or something like that. Mm. And I was like, dang. And so, you know, we would sort of like see each other around on Twitter or whatever. Fast forward to early 2018, Maria puts in a request for an interview with Bourdain for Popula a yet-to-exist website doing a weirdo experiment with blockchain technology. So I wrote to his assistant and I said, I know this is a moonshot and it's ridiculous and there's no way, but I, you know, I got to ask, what can they say? Because they know I, so I wrote and asked and she's like, he'll see you next week. This was February and they met at a restaurant in midtown Manhattan called The Coliseum, which, side note, just shut down after 40 years of being in business because of high rent. Anyway, Estella Artois for Bourdain, glass of Malbec for Maria. And listen carefully. After they first sit down, you can hear Bourdain tell Maria he's in no rush. This wasn't going to be like a quick 15 minutes. You probably don't have much time, so these are the things I want to talk about. Are you okay? Really? Oh, gosh, you're so generous. But I mean, I just didn't realize what it was going to turn into because I thought it was going to be this really brief conversation. And we wound up spending the whole long afternoon together and we just kept having another drink. It just turned out like like having this really, really long, crazy afternoon hangout with a friend. What Maria thought would be a quick 15-minute interview turned into a two-and-a-half-hour session. And later, what she wrote turned into an unexpected tribute to Bourdain. More after the break. So Maria recorded the entire afternoon at that bar in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan where she and Bourdain met. The sound quality isn't great, but nonetheless, I think you will find it as moving as I did to hear what ended up not being an interview at all. Listening to it, you feel like you're sitting right there next to them. I'll take some pictures if it's okay. 
Um, anyways. At first, Maria was focused on asking for Bourdain's thoughts on travel, consumerism, and luxury. She wanted to write an article about how Americans need to try and experience and appreciate other cultures on a human level, not just by staying in fancy hotels or getting tickets to the top hot sites. He, I kind of thought, you know, how not materialist are you? You know, I was like, this is sort of what I wanted to like, how non-luxury are you? And he's so fancy, you know, the whole world's in love with this guy. Like, you know, I came away thinking like he's this, sort of megastar who's also like a man struggling to make sense of the world. I do find that my happiest moments on the road are not standing in the balcony of a really nice hotel. That's a sort of bittersweet, if not melancholy, alienating experience. And my happiest moments on the road are usually off, almost always, in fact, always off camera generally with my crew, coming back from shooting a scene and just finding ourselves in this sort of absurdly beautiful moment. You know, to sit alone or with a few friends, half drunk looking out at the empty quarter uh, under a full moon. You just understand how lucky you are and how few people you know, if anyone, would even understand or relate to this. It's a story you, you can't tell. It's a story you almost by definition can't share. Most of the really great travel moments are just, they're for you. And I realized it was unsatisfying for me, it was unsatisfying for them. I just keep my mouth shut. And I've learned in real time to look at those things and just realize, well, I just had a really good moment. And at first the conversation was cordial, professional. I mean, I was much better behaved mm. toward the beginning. And I just got less well-behaved <laughs> as, as the afternoon wore on. They ordered another round and another one, and professional pretenses fell away, and the conversation turned to politics. You seem to bring out um, a relaxed side of him. I mean, at one point, you're yelling, you guys are talking about politics, and you're ye- you like yell at him, like, we need to do better than this, Anthony Bourdain. Like, <laughs> I, I was so drunk. For Obama, I genuinely believe he made regretful but calculated decisions. I'm going to save my ammunition for this. He did not. No, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And I know he was facing a really bad thing. You're never going to see him. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thank Um, you. You're never going to see a better human being in the White House, I I believe. Look, you know, you've got two options here. One, you've got, you know, somebody who's going to make compromises and uh, concessions. And the other is Pol Pot. I don't know. Like, if we Bobby, stop... Look, if you want to burn, down, burn Washington to the fucking ground, you know, I'm with you. I'm just waiting for a mob to assemble. And who will be leading this charge? Like, because if what? Susan Sarandon is anywhere among the joyful revelers, I've clearly chosen a wrong pony. No, it's not... You guys do not mince words. You, like... He says that, like, Jared Kushner's eyebrows look manscaped. <laughs> you call David Brooks a doofus. He calls um, Richard Branson a douche. Oh, my God, it was so funny. That was the moment I knew that I had my suspicions about Obama had been correct. And I loved him. I loved him. But, like, and he got on the fucking jet ski with Richard Branson right after he got out of the White House. And I'm like, dude. So? Is that really the first look that you want? You are a guy with a brand. You know that you would not do that if it were you. No, no, I wouldn't. You would not. I wouldn't. Why not? 
I'm because I'm vain. And I feel like Richard Branson's kind of a douche. <laughs> I know Obama wants to move to New York. Wow. And I know he, like, he likes New York restaurants, and he wants to eat in New York restaurants, and nobody will ask him. And if he's going to make a few speeches for the big money to do that, I'm okay with that. What's, what's the problem? They're not buying influence at this what's point. What's the problem? You're the, you are carrying the hopes of a generation of people. You need to be a fucking... Activist? Yes, yes. You need Despite to be being pretty much the same age, you seem to have held on to some idealism, and he did not. That is correct. What did it do for Jimmy Carter? He is like a hero. He will be remembered a thousand years after Obama has forgotten. That's what it did for him. As long as he's not cuddling up with Henry Kissinger, the man's okay with me. He sought the approbation of Kissinger, and you know it. Yeah, but they're not bestest buddies the next door neighbors. Are you making excuses now? He sought the approbation of Kissinger, and you know it. And I know what you think of Kissinger because I only tweeted this yeah, very right. afternoon. It ain't right. Face it. It's not good. We need to do better than this, Anthony yes. Bourdain. I agree. I don't know that we will. At this point, I would sacrifice, I would compromise on many of my principles just for basic fucking competency. Somebody who reads their daily security brief. There was a moment in the conversation that the two of you had where you talk about that the only people whose ideals can ever live on, um, who are also leaders, are people who die an early death. Yeah. And <laughs> he was so dark. Do you remember that part? <laughs> was, he was so bleak. We cannot choose the leaders of our revolutions. They are all deeply flawed, and they will all, all revolutions will be corrupted. Look, the minute everybody in the room agrees with you, you're in a bad place. So true. So, uh, I'm a big believer in change for change, just for its own sake, just to show that you can change, maybe move forward incrementally. In some way. But ain't nobody going to make everything better. The best revolutionaries are, of course, martyrs who died before they turned into disgusting, self-serving, corrupt pieces of shit. I know. As they all do. But like, yeah, he's like, oh, the only good revolutionaries is what it was about. Like, all revolutionaries yes. will disappoint unless they die. <laughs> really young. Yeah. I, de- my, I despise communism as much as, at least as much as I despise uh, our system. I don't know. We don't really know who the revolutionaries are, you know? It's like, we make narratives. History is is narratives that are made afterwards that are considered to be dispositive of, of reality in a way that they are absolutely not. Look at all the revisionism, you know? There's this really good book called History Thieves that's about how the English, you know, in the post-colonial period, who were thought to have been, like, pretty merciful... But they were going around, like, destroying records of atrocities that they committed systematically at the end of the Victorian period in a way that I had absolutely no idea. Putting all the documentation of, like, you know, prison camps and stuff, like, in, in chests and throwing them overboard. We do not know what is influential. We don't know who mattered most. We don't know what happened. It's like history, you know, journalism, like the gathering and dissemination of information is like an ongoing and completely flawed project. 
You're reminding me, though, of when I first ever spoke to you and I was like, why are you into this blockchain thing? And you were like, because of the permanence of record. That's exactly that right. That was your number one reason. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you think it's going to change the way that we tell stories and create history. Hope to God. Hope to fucking God, man. Yeah. Are you kidding? That's why I'm doing this. Despite being so authentic, in quotation marks, as you put it, he, there was a veneer I I sensed. Um, oh, yeah. Because that's the only way you can be on like that all the time. You have yeah. to hold something back for yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, completely. He felt this huge responsibility to be the man on TV for all the people who he was responsible for. He had a child. Mm. He had a lot of people that worked for him. He had, you know, other... He loved a lot of people and he felt responsible for them. And that was where the veneer came from. The sort of the sense that he always had to be, um, you know, Tony Bourdain. You know, the perfect car will not make me happy. The perfect house will probably make me sad and terrified. Please elaborate on that. Why? Well, because a house is a commitment. You know, you have to take care of it. You know, it's like any beautiful thing you have to maintain and protect. And then you also have to consider who gets it after you're gone. Books in particular, I have a lot of books that I really, really love. Uh, it's difficult for me because I think about, you know, who, who does one pass this on to? Who will appreciate it in the same way? You cannot take it with you, you know? Apparently. I, I often tell my kids that, you know, notice when you're happy. We're in such a hurry and you just rush over it. And it's like, you should really mark that down. Like, right now, I'm happy. The sort of pinnacle of happiness is available to anybody with, like, enough to eat and a clean place to sleep. And everyone should have that. And, and that's what I want popular to be about. And he felt like that, too. <sighs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's totally, totally okay. Anyway, I, I knew he felt like that too. And it, I just, I don't know. I knew he felt this way. And so I was writing this thing and, you know, we're, there were delays in, in the launch of Popula, just like there were, you know, Civil has had a lot of delays, like, you know, mostly on the on the regulatory side. And so I understood all of that, but it, it complicated our task quite a lot. But it gave me time to write. Maria was in the midst of writing that Bourdain feature and working her butt off to get Popula.com launched, commissioning pieces from dozens of writers around the world when the news came on June 8th. One morning I woke up and Twitter was on fire with, you know, something to do with Bourdain and I realized what it was and it, I just, <clears throat> it was really such a shock and, um... I just, I couldn't even look at any of it or think about it for a little while. But then, you know, I had to. And I just basically had to throw away everything I had written because it just, uh, it was just all wrong. And so, and then I struggled with like, what am I going to, what am I going to do with this thing? So many people love this guy. I just have to tell everyone exactly what he said as much as I can. And that's the best I can do. 
in some ways, it's what has put Popula on the map, this article. It really went viral when you published it. Did you feel weird about that in some way? Or I don't know. I'm a journalist, you know. I'm going to tell people what I know. I think people are going to remember him forever. And I feel really privileged to have had a kind of front row seat to what his mind was really like in person. Maria and Anthony Bourdain tweeted at each other a couple times after meeting, but Maria told me she really wished she'd been able to share the final piece with him. She ended up calling her story Bourdain Confidential. It was quoted in People Magazine, Entertainment Tonight, The Guardian, Forbes, The New York Post, Slate, Us Weekly, Business Insider, among many other places. We will link to it at zigzagpod.com, too. And just a final note, Maria only shared audio clips of Bourdain that were on the record. Much of their conversation was also off the record and will remain that way. Maria's story is just one example of some of the extraordinary work being done by the journalists on the civil platform. Deep dives into local news at Block Club Chicago and the Colorado Sun. Full coverage of New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect them on Documented. Investigating the links between the money and the politicians at Sludge. And another podcast that just launched this week, FAQ NYC. Longtime journalist Ozzy Pebarin, Professor Christina Greer, and Daily Beast editor Harry Siegel. They come together every week to take a focused look at one local story with all the context a person needs to actually be knowledgeable about it. We spoke this week to John Liu. He's currently running for the uh, state Senate, and we talked about that race, his positions, his 2013 mayoral race, and the IDC. The Independent Democratic Conference. Can I just say, it was a great interview. The IDC, a bunch of turncoat Democrats up in Albany. They sound like a street gang. Get FAQ NYC wherever you listen to ZigZag. Subscribe to both. Rate us and review us so that more people find us because it actually really matters. I have heard from so many listeners of my old show, Note to Self, who said, we didn't have any idea about ZigZag. So when you rate and review ZigZag, it gets the podcast app algorithms to serve up the show more often to people who also like listening to Note to Self. Um, So we thank you for that. Okay, two episodes left for season one of ZigZag. Thank you so much for all your suggestions about what we should be including in season two, which is coming in October. But don't worry, we will not be entirely away in September. We got a token sale to update you on, right? Meanwhile, if there's anything in particular that you want to hear explained or fleshed out about tokens or how Jen and I work or journalism... Whatever, record that voice memo, write that email, send it to zigzag at stableg.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram also at zigzagpod. We've got links to all the newsrooms and articles that we mentioned on this episode on our website at zigzagpod.com and in our weekly newsletter, which is free. You also get our podcast recommendations. You can sign up for that at the bottom of our homepage at zigzagpod.com. Also, a 
special thank you to all the folks who have decided registering for the civil token sale is not for them, but they are really glad to be learning about all this stuff. So they have made a donation directly to us by going to zigzagpod.com slash donate. It means so much to us. And Jen and I are putting your money right to work, hiring audio engineers to make the next season of ZigZag. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. David Herman is our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks to our other wonderful audio engineers, Dan DeZula and Matt Boynton. And our super smart intern is Jordan Lauf. ZigZag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thank you so much for listening. My feet are completely asleep. I need to get out from under this blanket. Okay. Okay, bye. Say bye. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs)